morning. Thank you, Juanita. Um, I think my cup is full <laughs> after the next gen choir and lift every voice. We probably could call it a day, but I'm going to spend some time in the Word nonetheless. As, as Juanita said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful to be with you this morning opening God's Word together. We're continuing in a series in the book of 2 Corinthians entitled Power in Weakness. And this week we're again in chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 14 through 21. I'm going to invite you, if you're able, as is our custom, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Your word, we believe, is true. And we ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would allow us to see you more clearly, and that as we encounter you, the living God, we would be transformed. God, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Back in December, Marvel released the ninth edition of the Spider-Man movie series. Not a huge Spider-Man fan, but kind of getting caught up in the buzz. And I recently saw a picture of the three actors who have had the privilege of, of donning the spider suit, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland. And as I looked at these three men, I couldn't marvel at how unsuperhero-ly they appeared. I mean, all three are, are short, lightweight, rather unintimidating people. But that's the point of the story, isn't it? The story of Spider-Man is one who was small, weak, insignificant, yet through the bite of a radioactive spider, through the infusion of the spider's radioactive venom, he becomes superhumanly strong. Now, what's unique about this superhero story, unlike Superman or, or the Hulk, even after the bite, Peter Parker, Spider-Man's power remains hidden. 
His physical body appears to be unchanged because the, the change takes place entirely on the inside. Our text describes a transformation in the lives of a Christian that in many ways mirrors that of Peter Parker. You see, through the first five chapters of this letter, Paul has been focusing a lot on the weaknesses that are true of himself, that are true of you and me as well. Yet his big idea here in chapter 5 is that the apparent weakness is in fact only skin deep. Much like Peter Parker, underneath the surface, inside these jars of clay, there is strength beyond measure. Who knew that Christians had so much in common with Spider-Man? This morning I want to examine this hidden strength. And in keeping with our cultural moment, my two points this morning are the virus and the contagion. Let's begin. I want to begin by reminding you of the context. Paul is writing to a church that he helped to start years ago. And Paul is writing to a group of Christians, to a group of people who confessed Christ as Lord. And I bring that up to make clear that whenever Paul says us in 2 Corinthians, whatever happens after that us applies to all who identify as followers of Christ. And our text begins with a very bold statement about those who identify in that way. Paul says that all who follow Christ have been infected by something Now, I know we're all a little virused out, and maybe this is my overly sensitive COVID lens, but as I studied this passage, I couldn't help but marvel at how well the virus metaphor works here. Get this, Paul is saying that to be a Christian is to come in contact with something, something that invades our bodies and takes control, and then in turn spreads from the inside out to those around us. It spreads to those who are relationally close, those who metaphorically come unmasked inside six feet. And Paul is saying this thing that has gotten a hold of us as Christians, it's powerful. The word that is translated as control here in verse 14 is the Greek word suneko. Same word that is used to describe the kind of constraining that was done to a prisoner. Paul is declaring that something has gripped us to the core. But what is it? What is this virus that's taking control from the inside out? Look again at verse 14. Paul says that that which all Christians have been infected with is the love of Christ. It's Christ's love that has entered into the life of the Christian like a virus and is compelling us to act in a certain way. Now, much like COVID-19, we need to be real clear about what this virus is and what it is not. And what makes this particularly difficult to define is the word love and how much the meaning of that word changes based on the culture and the context in which it is used in. I want to look at two different definitions of love that I think will be familiar to you and then compare and contrast those definitions with the love that Paul is describing here in 2 Corinthians. I need to give credit to both the late Jonathan Edwards and Tim Keller for the work that they have done on defining God's love that has profoundly shaped my understanding of this subject. So give credit where credit is due. But uh, question then, how do we 21st century Americans define love? 
I would say the most common definition in our cultural moment is that love is a powerful emotion. As the wise poet Colby Calais says, you've got me feeling like a child now because every time I see your bubbly face, I get the tingles in a silly place. (laughs) Many would argue that the essence of love is a feeling. It's an attraction, a desire, a chemistry, something tingly, if you will. Now, that is probably the most common definition, but you might also hear love defined in the exact opposite way, love defined purely as action, that the essence of love is serving someone that involves not the heart but the will. To quote the great Brian Adams, oh, you can't tell me it's not worth trying for. I can't help it. There's nothing I want more. I'd fight for you. I'd lie for you. I'd walk the wild for you, wire for you. I'd die for you. You know it's true. Everything I do, I do it for you. (laughs) To love is to put another first, to give yourself away to another. Now, don't miss this. I think both of these definitions of love are, in fact, true. And what you will see is that the love of Christ is certainly no less than these two things. But what I want to argue is that Christ's love is actually far more. Listen to how Jesus defines love in chapter 15 of of the book of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples in the upper room, his 12 closest friends. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, if we stop right there, I think that second definition would work. Love is all about action, that it's, it's all about obedience. Jesus says, I love my father by obeying him, and therefore the way you love me is by obeying me. So then is love just about obedience? Well, yes and no. We have to let Jesus finish his thought, and when we do, we'll see that, in fact, obedience is really just a means to a far better end. Listen to verse 11. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What Jesus ultimately wants is not your obedience, but your joy, full joy for that matter. And the reason this is infinitely and unequivocally true is because we are designed to glorify God. Much like Tiger Woods was was designed to hit a golf ball, Adele was designed to sing, Joey Chestnut was designed to eat hot dogs, you and I were, were made to glorify God. We were designed for that purpose which is why Jesus' imperative to obey the commandments makes so much sense. Because Jesus knows that obedience is really the only way to fully embrace what we were made for and in turn to find true and lasting joy. And this, I, I believe, is the paradigm shifter. If you walk away with nothing else from today, walk away with this truth. And that is that throughout the scriptures, whenever you hear God calling you to obedience, pleading you with you to submit to him, know that behind that pleading is God's desperate longing for you to experience full joy. It's such a big, important gospel truth. It's in that pleading and exhorting that we find the true picture of what the love of Christ really is. You see, the kind of love that Christ has is a love that places happiness in the happiness of another. Let me say that again a little bit more clearly. Christ's love is a love that places his happiness inside of our happiness. 
This is how Jonathan Edwards says it. He says, what, that wasn't good. He says, what can be more properly called love to any being or anything than to place one's happiness in that thing causing the good of another now to be your good? J.I. Packer, a little bit more succinctly. God's love involves his identifying ourself, excuse me, his identifying himself with our welfare. God's love involves his identifying himself with our welfare. Let that sink in for a moment. The God of the universe who has no needs whatsoever who has access to whatever he wants, whenever he wants it, has willfully chosen to so bind his heart with ours, so identify with us that he cannot be happy unless you are happy. That's the biblical definition of love, to bind your heart to someone in such a way that only their flourishing is what makes you happy. You can't be happy unless you see that person having complete joy. And what I think is cool about that is really it's the wedding of those two definitions that I gave you before. It incorporates the heart and the will. Clearly, to love like that involves strong emotion feelings, but it's not purely emotional. It's a, it's a, it's a love that incorporates the will as well. It involves a commitment to the other person that inspires action and service. Tim Keller has a helpful illustration. I think this makes it even more clear. He compares the difference between the kind of love that often exists between husband and wife with that of the love that exists between a parent and a child. He talks about how most couples early in their dating experience, they have this excitement and this thrill. Just holding the other's hand can, can send chills down your spine. But, but what is that? Is that love? I think if we're honest, most of the time, those feelings are really ego-driven. The rush that comes from the fact that this person admires and respects us, that, that they who we admire and respect like me. <laughs> we are encouraged by that. It feels good that someone that we admire would think much of us. But the problem with that kind of connection is that at its core, it really is about what the other person does for me. I love them because they make me feel valuable or special. Now think about the parent-child relationship. If you're a parent, you know that when a child enters the world, they have nothing to offer to the parent. They offer nothing and demand everything. Time, care, diaper changing, spoon feeding, sleep deprivation. These are the things that they demand. But what's fascinating about this sort of relationship is that normally over time, through countless hours of serving and caring, the parent's heart ends up being bound up more and more with the child over time. Which is why as parents you resonate with the quote, you are only as happy as your unhappiest child. That quote will haunt you for the rest of the week. <laughs> Fast forward 20 years or so in the marriage relationship that I described, if your love is based upon what your spouse does for you and the spouse stops giving you what you want, you will begin to pull away, claiming that the love is gone. 
And yet for most parents, after 20 years of serving and sacrificing, giving the child everything and getting very little in return, no matter how bad that child screws up, you are ready to go to bat for them in the blink of an eye. Church, don't miss this. God's love is much more like that committed parent than a fickle spouse. He has bound up his heart with ours, and therefore his joy is wrapped up in ours. And no matter how bad we screw up, he's ready to go for the bat, go to the bat for us. Is not is that not the trajectory of the whole Bible? The people of God screwing up time and time again, and God whose heart is so bound to his people that he goes to bat for them again and again and again. God does not need us, and yet he chooses to voluntarily create neediness in himself by putting his happiness in our happiness. How do we know that? Look again at the text, verse 18. It says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. The greatest picture of God's love towards us is the work of reconciliation that he has done for us through Christ, reconciling us to himself. How? How did God do that? Verse 14 says, through dying for all. Verse 15, Jesus, for our sakes, died and was raised. The reconciliation, the reconciliation happens through Christ giving his life for us, his blood instead of ours. Does not this understanding of love shed incredible light on the beauty of the gospel, on the beauty of the cross? Jesus loves you so much that he has put your happiness, excuse me, he has put his happiness in your and my welfare. He knows that our welfare depends entirely upon us being reconciled to God. Therefore, Jesus marches into Jerusalem and he offers his body as a perfect sacrifice, the only thing that could ever truly reconcile us to God. Church, that's the virus that infects each and every follower of Christ, that love that is not need-based, but entirely out of a desire for your and my well-being. Have you been infected with that love? Do you recognize how undeserving you are and how freely it has been given to you? Do you comprehend how much Jesus longs for your joy to be full? Or have you confused the love of Christ with the love of this world that has expectations and demands that is only given in return for something that ebbs and flows with the shifting tide? The way to know if you are truly experiencing the love of Christ is is rather simple. You just look at how Christ's love is impacting you. Early on in this pandemic, the, the symptom list that the CDC sent out seemed forever long. Upset stomach, runny nose, headache, loss of appetite. It sounds like a typical Monday for me, but uh, we're, we're constantly checking our symptoms to see if we've been infected by this virus. Paul says when we are infected by God's love, it produces one symptom, and that symptom is full body control, which means that if we perceive, if what we perceive as God's love doesn't move us, motivate us, inspire us, then it probably isn't God's love. And if that is the case, then I would challenge you to sit in God's love some more. 
sit in God's word, meditate upon the powerful truths of his love until the weightiness of it lands upon you. I remember hearing of a pastor who started each day imagining himself at the foot of the cross, blood dripping on his head. And the pastor would stay there in that image every morning until the glory of the cross hit him at his core. I don't start every day with that image per se, but I do try to begin my days pondering and meditating on the love of Christ until it grips my heart again and and begins to, to take control of me. Which brings us to our second and and much shorter point, the contagion. Or better stated, how does this virus spread? I think one thing that has been frustrating about COVID-19 is it's so hard to nail down how it spreads. Does it spread outside? Does it spread inside, through masks, in children, in dogs? We don't know. And what's so hard is it can't be seen by the naked eye. It's invisible, but on the move nonetheless. Up until now, we've stated that the love of Christ is is inside of us. It's taking control, but, but to what end is really the question. What does the love of Christ compel Christians to be or to do? What our text reveals is that the result of Christ's love in us is Christ's heart coming out of us. We begin to love like he loves Paul describes this transformation in three different places. First, verse 15, he says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. This is the fundamental change that happens. Self becomes the ultimate end no longer. The love of Christ causes us to, like Jesus, bind our happiness in the happiness of another. Paul unpacks this further in verse 18. Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is a huge point here. Christ knew that the only hope for our joy was through us being reconciled to God. Therefore, it makes perfect sense as those who have been reconciled to God that we would realize that the only pathway to joy for those around us is for them also to be reconciled to God. That is what Paul means when he says he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Those who have experienced the joy that comes from being reconciled now have the opportunity, the privilege to to lead others to that same reconciliation. Paul puts the icing on the cake in verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul has clearly been infected by the love of Christ. We implore you, we beg you, he says. He's got this big heart full of emotion, but it's not purely emotion. It's, It's this emotion that leads to action, that leads to pleading and urging, be reconciled to God. Why should Paul care about these random people living hundreds of miles away, many that he has never met and will never meet? The answer is because the love of Christ is now controlling Paul, causing him to put his happiness in the happiness of others. As a result, Christ's love is spreading. It's spreading like a pandemic without face masks. It's moving all over the place from person to person. As Christ's love comes in, takes over, and then moves out. Church, whether or not 
whether you like it or not, we have a lot in common with Peter Parker. On the surface, we are weak. We are sinful, selfish, fickle, comfort-seeking, approval-sucking, idol-worshiping, self-absorbed people. That was your pep talk. (laughs) And yet those who call upon the name of the Lord have been bitten. We've been infected with the gospel and are being transformed by the love of Christ from the inside out. And it's that love inside of us that makes us immeasurably strong And when unleashed, spreads like a virus, a virus that will transform this earth into something like heaven. Church, sit in Christ's love. Marvel at its beauty and allow it to mold and shape you. And may that love flow out of this place into the streets and sidewalks, the schools and workplaces, the parks and playgrounds of this city that we call home. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love, your love that is not uh, rooted in anything that we have done. We haven't earned it. We don't deserve it. But for some beautiful reason, you have put your happiness and bound it inside of ours. You long for our joy. And because of that, you sent your son to the cross reconciled us to yourself, filling us with your love. Father, we thank you. Father, we pray that your love would continue to have its work in us and through us, that we would be transformed to love more like you love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.